0: In a box undigified Gonna rewind And give them one more try Think about the days Of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex And TDK Getting music out there The old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits Of one day Mixtape Phonograph. And dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet the Mix mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice
1: of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of 1973, where we curate a mixtape featuring songs released exactly 50 years ago. And we talked last week, we won't go into it again this week, but uh, both of us recently turned 50 years old, and so... I think what last season we did 1972, right? Uh,
2: 1982. 82. Did we do 82? Yeah, so we did 91,
1: 82, now 73. Okay, yeah. Because uh, I was officially technically born at the tail end of of seventy two, but as as my friends and my wife tried to remind me, I'm basically a seventy three or So yeah, but yeah. I'm that much older than everybody else by, you, a, few, you by are. a few months. Yeah, you got me. But uh, yeah, we talked a lot about how uh, technology uh, has changed, and and even had some music that that related to that fact. And so go back and listen to side A if you haven't. I mean, you can listen to them out of order. It's it's not. I've <laughs> heard <laughs> anything. We might reference a few things, but um, but we'll. We'll try to avoid the chit chat on all that because because uh, we talked about that last week. Um, same criteria, right? We picked songs that um, that obviously were were released in 1973. I tried to choose songs that were really important um, to the rock era, either by introducing new bands like like Queen, um, or talking about the whole industry of, of of rock and roll, like We're an American Band and Rocky Mountain Way and uh, and, and other songs like that. So, what do you think? Anything? You know, uh
2: not really before we start i wasn't looking so much at songs that um defined um rock music i i i I did try to bring a few of those um but i i tried to do more of a cross-section i have a lot of very pop-driven hits number ones uh from 73 and also a few um few deep cuts, and, and a couple here that just did not chart, but everybody knows them and I think would assume that they did. Yeah. So uh, kind of a, a little bit of everything. Um, for the year that I was born, I was a 73 baby. You, you do have me beat. So uh, <laughs> um, I do have to revere my elders. So, you know, I respect you. That just uh,
1: means I get o- older faster than everybody else. It, so. That is
2: what that means. I, <laughs> so. it, does, it doesn't really
1: bother me it, it, that much because um, I don't feel 50. You know, um, who was it just um, – who was it just turned like ninety? Uh, comedian from Laughing, uh, what's her name? Well, I can't. Carol Burnett was she on Laughing?
2: No. Okay. No. Go to Go to Okay. Well,
1: yeah, it was Carol Burnett. I think she just turned okay. like ninety-three or whatever. She said she still feels like she's eleven or whatever. So, yeah, and I get that. The state of mind that is true. Um, you know, I remember my dad telling me that one time. He's just like, I just don't feel my age, and I think that's that's a good. Attitude to have, but when you see yourself when you're clicking through the demographics and it says 50 to 59 and you got to click that box, yeah, that hurts a little bit. It does, or stars that you grew up with, like Tom Cruise and, and Brad Pitt and those guys, which are always the young movie stars, right, are now the old movie stars, right? Yeah. And rockers that we grew up with, I mean, when you think about like Dave Grohl being like, if he's not 60, he's probably getting close to it's it, has got to be real close, yeah, and it's just, um, yeah, it's it's tough,
2: yeah, it's uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where the time goes. You know, I'm in my mind. I still feel very young in my body. I feel, oh, I feel like I'm wheelchair bound uh,
1: very soon. He's fifty-four, so I don't want to. I don't rush him too much. He's only four Ooh, years older. I it, thought he was older. If a girl
2: listens, he's offended. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, it's just really like I said last week. The number doesn't bother me, but. And, I don't know. Like I think like all Gen Xers, I still think that the 90s was 10 years ago. Yeah. Know, the 80s yeah. was 20 years ago. Right. So, doing you know a, a mixtape of songs that are celebrating their 50th birthday, these songs don't a lot of them do not feel that old to me. And yet some of them were recorded in the months before I was born. So it, it's I, I have a very skewed the understanding of time, I suppose. Well, I
1: and this is where it really gets me. Okay, so you go from, from nineteen seventy three to now, right, and that fifty year block. Okay, all that makes sense to me, you know. Yes, it's warped and the time's weird in my head. But take fifty years the other direction. Right? Yeah. The guy goes back to nineteen twenty-three. And you think about that was prior <sighs> to the Great Depression, prior to World War Two. Prior to the the fifties and and all the, the changed in pop culture then, and so the Beatles right. Let's just say the watershed year was nineteen sixty four because that's when the British invasion started. Sure. Okay, yeah. So what's fifty years the other direction? Isn't it like nineteen fifteen? Am I right? 19, 50, what, 1914.
2: 1914. So oh, Jesus, we're in, <laughs> we're in World War One, you
1: know. <laughs> so you see my point? Like like you know, from, from nineteen seventy three now doesn't feel like that much of a jump in time, right? But, man, you go the other direction, and 50 years is a lot.
2: Well, and you know, we are closer. Yeah, it's – we're closer to, to 20 – going going <laughs> forward, I mean, it, it's scary. We're, my,
1: we're blowing our minds here. Yeah,
2: I mean, we're closer to 20, 2050 than we are to 1950. You know, to me, yeah. that's just – I it's – I don't know. Yeah. It's just a scare it's that scary, that's not the right word. It's just it just seems impossible. I'm just incredulous that you know the time has moved so quick. We all were told, you know. Yeah. Every child is told the time goes by so fast and of course we you know, we don't we don't buy into it and we tell our own kids they, they scoff at us as we did the older generation. But it, it's you know, as Doctor Who once explained, it's just a big ball of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. I guess yeah. it's just I don't know where the time goes. It's it's almost like time travel, yeah. um, because I, I I can remember events from thirty years ago vividly, and I can't remember what I had for breakfast yeah. yesterday. So it's just scary.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I remember in nineteen eighty seven when when um, Sergeant Pepper's was twenty years old. Yeah. You know, and, right. and 20 years ago today, and and I thought, wow. And and then when Nevermind, you know, is now what 25, 27, 91, whatever. 91. But it would have been. It, it just it's just so, so strange. 32, strange. Yeah.
2: 32 years. 32 um, years since Nevermind came out. Yeah, 91, Holy 32 crap. years. Crap. Um, yeah, Gee,
1: I remember when it, yeah, when it turned 10 years old, I thought, oh, okay, anyway, we, we're done. Everyone's turned us off by now right? because we're making all the Gen Xers feel old. Yeah. But again, it's state of mind. So, and like you said, time, and, and I'm really kind of getting into reading about quantum physics. I don't understand any of it, but, <laughs> but like the science part of it, I don't understand, but I do understand the you know, when really nice, smart scientists know how to things in like a fourth grade level and explain them then i can kind of pick up the basics of it right and that's when i begin to see you know when you see all those theories that were just science fiction before about like alternate you know string theory alternate universes dark matter and stuff and you start thinking well yeah time really is like einstein said it's it's very relative and, and i think we feel that all the time it's it's become very slippery for me kind of like a dark tower stephen king where, where time becomes very slippery uh. all right I'm first, right? You Yay. are first. All right. Yes. So here's my bridge from the last episode. Um, we talked about how Angie was a departure for the Rolling Stones, and it was controversial because it was pop, pop, more pop-oriented. Here's another song that was a big departure for the band um, that caused a lot of controversy, and I'm talking about Dire Maker mm. by Led Zeppelin from Houses of the Holy. <laughs>
2: Again, I wouldn't have suspected that this would have been, that the band would have been labeled as you know selling out to a a, the pop, the pop sound. To me, it still sounds very much like Zeppelin. Yeah, especially especially on an album that also features the ocean and no quarter. I mean, it's they're still rocking hard.
1: Yes, yes, but I think a because of the, the obvious reggae influence. True, um, and the fact that it, it the melody is is a lot more more melodic, or the hook is a lot more um, I don't know how you would say that, but it's catchier, right? Right. Then, than a lot of their stuff, so you can see that. Um, actually, and not everybody, even the band, like like John Paul Jones hated it. He he said it started as a joke in the studio where they were like, "Hey, let's do a radio song," you know, and 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 they're they're playing, and and then it became a song, and he felt like it was never really thought thought up. Early before they did that, and fans were very divided, and still are today. A lot of fans kind of dismiss this track. Uh, I like it.
2: Oh, I I, I like love it. it's one of my favorite albums by Zeppelin. I and love House of the Holy.
1: I'm, I remember when I was getting into Zeppelin in high school. Um, uh, some of the older swimmers listened to uh, to Zeppelin when we were we were lifting weights in the morning. And I remembered I kind of, you know I kind of liked it all, but th- this song was really what hooked me and got me into Zeppelin. Like really? this song, oh my gosh! I, make so it. I can see where. And, and I'm not the only one. Axel Rose, a teenage Axel Rose said that this is the song that got him into heavier rock and roll music. Hmm. Um, when he heard this song, it was kind of that gateway drug into, you know, because this song is a little poppier, but he liked that song. So then he started buying Led Zeppelin albums and that really introduced him to this, to the bluesy bluesy rock um, that he wasn't aware of as a teenager. Huh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, well, you know, Zeppelin, they were, they were really upset because the, a lot of people said they were selling out with Zeppelin 2 and Zeppelin 3 because they went almost entirely acoustic right, on right. those two albums. So then Zeppelin 4, they brought back, you know, the. Right. That was the whole point of rock and roll. Sure. You know, the track rock and roll on Zeppelin 4.
1: And, and this was also a combination of not just the, the reggae sound, but early rock and roll. Right. Um, they they really bring back, in fact, uh, in the original album sleeve, they gave themselves like a fake name, like. Forget what it was called, Rosie and the orchestral or something, something like that because mm. they wanted to throw back to you know, the, the 50s. So I, I always heard the reggae um, very prominently, but after reading that, I went back and listened to it. And I'm like, yeah, oh well, yeah, there's there's the early rock and roll
2: oh, yeah. um,
1: sound on there as well. There is. Yeah. The, um, the, the name of the song always eluded me, the meaning of the name. I don't know if, if you know what it means. I have
2: never known what it, I've never understood the, the name, no. Okay,
1: so really it, 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 it just comes from a really bad joke. Okay, so here's the joke, all right? There are two guys, and uh, and one says, hey, my wife is moving to the West Indies. And the other one says, now this is in a British accent, he says, um, oh yeah, Jamaica? And he says, no, she wanted to go. Okay. Ta-da-tum. And so, that's where it came from. It's a, it's a phonetic, it's a British phonetic spelling of Jamaica, Jamaica. And Jamaica. so, it ended up morphing into Dire Maker, because of the whole reggae right. influence.
2: Jamaica, Jamaica. Yeah, I can, oh, okay. I, I guess
1: it's kind of like a New York thing. You know how New Yorkers will take right. that, or put an er at the end of like instead of an uh, A, yeah. like Billy Joel, you know, Brenda and Eddie. Yeah. You know, Jamaica. And I Jamaica. guess I, that New York yeah. comes from the British, probably an evolution from the British pronunciation of those, of those words. Probably.
2: So. I, I've never heard that anecdote. That I, is, I didn't either. That either. is that's really, that's fascinating. I yeah. had no idea... I, I never knew
1: I mean yeah, I've heard like there's a tanning salon in Jamaican me tan in town so right. it's similar to that type of thing too but
2: hmm.
1: Jamaican me crazy I've seen shirts with that on right. so yeah. you know Jamaica, Jamaica. no I, she wanted to go <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is, that's great I've never heard that story yeah. that is fantastic
1: but I love the song it's just a lot of fun um, it, it's fun Zeppelin you know um, there's a lot of fun Zeppelin rock and roll is a fun song you know um, like you mentioned the ocean there's just a lot of really good stuff Okay.
2: You know what always kind of makes me laugh are the people that think that Zeppelin is metal. No, they're, they're, no. no. A, what, when we were in high school, though, I remember a lot of people who, for whatever reason, would label Zeppelin as early metal. Well, and,
1: it, it, there's a spectrum, right? Because I thought the same thing about Iron Maiden, because they were considered metal. Well, Iron, and well, you listen well, Iron to them Maiden, now,
2: yeah. and they just sound like harder classic rock. They well, do, yeah. Right but Iron Maiden was— they. they they, they sold themselves. They leaned now. into that yeah. with Eddie and everything. You know, yeah, yeah, you're right. Led Zeppelin but, but did that. But Zeppelin was just a blues band. Yeah. That, that's all they But they, they were, were very hard for their time. The, like oh, they They, were. they, they, they yeah.
1: stole all that stuff from the early blues masters and they re recorded it and yeah. they did it a lot louder and harder.
2: I think a lot of the reason people mislabeled them, though, is because of the distortion. Yeah. But that was just the lack of recording. Yeah, the, the recording were awful. industry yeah. did not, could not. There was no way to 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 cleanly correct record the the guitar right. at, at that level. I mean, right. it's if you know if you heard him on stage, it, it did not sound as muddied right. as you right. know. Um, I don't know. It's just uh, just thinking back to I, I knew people who used to tell me or describe them as metal, and but you're right. Iron Maiden or Ozzy as an example. Ozzy, I mean, Crazy Train <laughs> is about as pop driven as you can <laughs> right, get, right, you know. Right. But we we thought he was hardcore. But there time. is a through line.
1: I mean, you go, let's, let's say you start with um, um, Helter Skelter from the Beatles. Sure. Right? There's yeah. a through line from that song all the way to the screamo rawr, 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 metal, right? There's not, they're <laughs> nothing alike, but that's, that's evolution. Yeah, no, it is. You, you go back and you can connect all of the parts that go directly from that song to the, some of the metal, the death metal that's out today.
2: Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a big enough fan of, of metal to actually explore that with great diligence but it, it, it's I, don't, I just I love I consider myself an amateur music historian so I you know seeing the pieces and parts um, and how the subdivisions are, are drawn I mean
1: even the song they toined the term
2: was not a metal song with oh, born yeah, to be wild, born of the wild yeah heavy metal thunder yeah all right all right well I warned you last week it was coming um, and I I don't know I second guessed and then I thought the hell with it it was the number one song of the year we did not do the number one song for 1982, and we did not do the number one song for 1991. But for 1973, I'm giving you the year-end number one song of the year. Where are you going to fit this? In it? <laughs> <I'm gonna> <laughs> the end? Don't know yet. But uh, nonetheless, I am giving you "Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree" by Tony Orlando and Dawn from the 1973 album "Tune Weaving," and this hit number one and stayed there for a very long time. song was written by Erwin Levine and Larry Brown, who wrote the previous number one hit for the group, Knock Three Times. So it, it's same same songwriting team. The song is actually based on a story called Going Home that Levine read in the January 1972 edition of the magazine Reader's Digest. Uh, the story was originally published in the New York Post on October 14th of 71, appearing in a column called The 8 Million, written by Pete Hamill. Okay, so there's there's kind of the timeline. The The story itself that this song is based on uh, tells of six kids riding a bus from New York to Fort Lauderdale who strike up a conversation with a man named Vingo who tells them he was just released from prison after four years in jail. He told his wife Martha that she could start a new life without him and for the last three and a half years of his incarceration he did not hear from her at all. Okay, In his last letter to her he gave her instructions and the story reads... We used to live in this town, Brunswick, just before Jacksonville, and there's a big oak tree just as you come into town, a very famous tree, huge. I told her that if she'd take me back, she should put a yellow handkerchief on the tree and I'd get off and come home. If she didn't want me, forget it, no handkerchief, and I'd go through. Everyone on the bus kept a lookout for the tree, and when they arrived, there were lots of handkerchiefs tied to it, giving the story a very happy ending. So, it's a folk story. And different versions of it had been floating around for decades, often with white oak, or Georgia as the setting. Pete Hamill heard the story at a Greenwich Village bar called The Lion's Head, where writers would congregate. And Levine and Brown thought it would make a great song, so they used the story as the basis for the lyric, changing the handkerchief to a yellow ribbon, since tie a yellow handkerchief around the old oak tree would be a little awkward. And there really is, for what it's worth, a historic oak tree in Brunswick, Hmm. as told in the New York Post story, but it's in Georgia, nowhere near Fort Lauderdale. Okay. Uh, a song of the same name uh, was used in the 1949 John Wayne movie, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. And this could be where Levine and Brown got the idea for the yellow ribbon, possibly. Uh, many associated this song with soldiers who were returning home from the Vietnam War. Yellow ribbons began appearing on trees to welcome them home in '73. Uh, The other ribbons appeared again in 1980 when Americans put them up on trees to remember the hostages being held in Iran. Ten years later, a group called Visual AIDS convinced people attending the Tony Awards to wear small red ribbons as a symbol of AIDS awareness. Uh, Soon, many causes produced ribbons. Well, heck, when
1: we were in college, the Gulf War, we started seeing them. Exactly. Uh,
2: You see them now for breast cancer awareness. You see them for... um, Oh, there's a ribbon for everything
1: no but i mean they actually were tying yellow, oh, ribbons, yellow ribbons around yeah. trees in the yeah. front yard in support of the in troops, support of the troops yeah. during the gulf uh, desert storm
2: correct yeah no that's true but i'm just talking about the, how how the causes yes. things, you yes. know mounted yep. Yep. um in 2004 you know the trend extended to rubber bracelets uh when cyclist and cancer survivor lance armstrong worked with nike to promote yellow bracelets labeled live strong that raised money for cancer research um of course, Lance. Yeah, Lance has fallen off yeah. the you know. from grace. Yeah, but um, nonetheless, yeah. The 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 influence of this song and before at the story, knowing where the the song came from, um, it it continues. Uh, there are ribbons for everything, and I imagine. God forbid there should be another war. I would not be surprised if we embraced the yellow ribbons to welcome the soldiers back yet again. So
1: It's a catchy, bouncy song. I'm just afraid to listen to it because it'll be in my head for the next it, three it,
2: weeks. It is, is near worm. It absolutely is. Um, the first Tony Orlando and Don album was released in 1970, but at the time, Orlando was backed by various studio singers. Telma Hopkins and Joyce Vincent Wilson were eventually chosen as Dawn, and then they sang on subsequent recordings. Um... This one favorite pop rock song single of the first annual American Music Awards in 1974. The song also got two Grammy nominations, Song of the Year and Best Pop Group Performance. When the trio performed the song at the ceremony in March 74, they got the attention of Fred Silverman at CBS, who gave them a summer variety series called Tony, Orlando, and Dawn, which began airing in July. I have very, not not vivid at all, but I have memories of my parents watching the Tony, Orlando, and Dawn show. I don't know how I do, because I would have been a year or two old, but I just...
1: I just see Leisure Suit. That's all I see. Yeah,
2: Well, Tony Orlando, I I especially remember he came on to uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon every year. Oh, did Orlando was always on, and he'd sit there and sing for far too long, because I I always thought the telethon would be cool. You know, I'd see all the the celebrities that I admire. They were never the celebrities I wanted to see. Well, no, and I watched it
1: for all the wrong reasons. I was just hoping that Jerry Lewis was going to, like, collapse. (laughs) Because <laughs> he was up all night, and I'm like, dude, I just want to see him just like fall over and fall asleep. Yeah,
2: well, it was a different time. I remember, I remember he and all of his guests, and even the people working the phones on the telephone. They're all sitting there smoking cigarettes. Oh, and There on probably the lots of and, cocaine going around. Oh, I'm sure there was. Um, but uh, yeah, it, uh, last thing I'll say in 1977, a Japanese movie called The Yan- Yellow Handkerchief was released. It was based on the same newspaper story that this song was based on. Um, that film was then remade in English in 2008 with William Hurt playing the convict returning home. So there, there is a long literary tradition to the song, and um, you know, every cause that that grows in awareness is a good thing. So eh, the song's not as bad as we make it out to be, but it is a guilty pleasure. Well, I can't it, it. It, it is an earworm it's, without It's the
1: production, right? It's early 70s pop. Yeah, uh, easy listening production. If you took that song and stripped it down, um, you know it'd still be kind of a bouncing melody, but you could probably make it a little more listenable.
2: You could, yeah. <laughs> if you go with a minimalist approach, just a, an acoustic guitar and you know some, yeah. I like get.
1: like try like think about it with a banjo, a kind of a, a country flavor to it.
2: Oh, this could be a bluegrass number, no problem.
1: That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Like that, that's the, that song. I could I could get on board. But
2: yeah, agreed. Yeah, very good.
1: All right, my next one. Um, I don't think we've featured any Beatles yet uh, on this particular No, theme. we haven't.
2: I, you know, I thought about it. I, I thought at one point, thrown on My Love by McCartney or Photograph by Starr or "Number 9 Dream, which mm-hmm. would have been 73 for Lennon. You, of course, went with the fourth.
1: I did, I did. Uh, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth by George Harrison from the album Living in the Material World. This is a, a Harrison Post Beatles classic. Um, Ringo joins him on drums and backing vocals. That was very common uh, on, on, on I would say, maybe in most of the uh, Post Beatles hits from solo artists featured at least one other uh, Beatle. Usually it was Ringo. Ringo just played on everybody's oh, tracks. Well, Ringo,
2: <laughs> Ringo yeah, Ringo, Ringo held no hard feelings toward anybody. Right. You know.
1: But George would, you know, would join... You know, John, John and Paul never really worked directly together. Although they, from what I understand, still stayed friendly. Um, like at one point, they, they were watching Saturday Night Live together and famous in New story York and almost yeah. showed
2: up. So yeah, How, you know, had they changed, that would have changed the course of rock and roll. Oh yeah, they, the Beatles would have been back. Yeah, immediately. Yeah, no. So um, the
1: the this song is right in that same, that wheelhouse that, that George w- was in for quite a while. Really, never left, and that that was his, his spiritualism, his spiritual side, right. Um, and, and the lyrics to all of his songs during this period of time would basically, like, you know, we have Christian rock now. This would have been, you know, what what what's the term? Not Hindu. Hindu rock. Hindu rock. Um, <laughs> but, it, yeah, very um, much in Indian spirit, spiritualism is, is Ray, what yeah. he was. Of course, the Beatles all experimented that, with that a little bit in, in the late 60s, but George was the one that really took it to heart. Oh, yeah, converted. And, and yeah. his entire life um, lived that very much because it was all about... A reaction to what was happening in the 60s. Um, you know, it was very much a, a message of peace and love and, of course, give me love, give me peace on earth. <laughs> this song fits that perfectly. Well, you
2: know, in the 70s, there was just a strong like Indian influence. I mean, right. I, the Hare Krishna movement, you would see him in every airport. Sure, sure. You know, handing out literature and th- I don't know why they, that ended. I, it just suddenly came to a stop I don't know
1: after airplane they just couldn't face you, you themselves think it was that airplane?
2: <laughs> yeah uh, well in fairness there, was, there was on the church no, of religious yeah. consciousness in fairness nothing was safe in the airplane <laughs> movies it's one of the reasons I love them so much
1: the uh this was uh Harrison's second number one song uh the first was My Sweet Lord from 1970 the Phil Spector produced album All Things Must Pass um this one here's an interesting little fact. Um, when it hit number one, it pushed another post-Beatles song off the number one spot. It you just mentioned it, "Wings My Love," mm-hmm. and um, it is the only time in music chart history that two Beatles occupied the number one and number two positions on the chart.
2: Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Paul Paul had the huge hits. John John kind of. He, he weaves in and out of, you know, mainstream music a lot of the times. Ringo, once you get past Photograph and it, you know, it don't come easy, Ringo didn't have a lot of chart success at all.
1: Well, that's what's interesting. And and, and this, I don't even have to look up because I remember it. As a kid, I had a copy of uh, Joel Whitburn's Top 40. Um, and of course, we didn't have the internet, right? Right. And so it was a reference book that, you know, it was alphabetical by artist and it listed all of their Top 40 songs, what chart position, And little information facts And so I remember when I was into the Beatles I was probably 13 or 14 at the time Going through this book and trying to like figure out You know artists and songs And and so Paul McCartney by by far Had the most top 40 hits So take him out of the conversation Now not counting quality of music And not counting uh, chart position Just songs that made the top 40 At the time this was 1984 John Lennon, Ringo Starr And George Harrison all had the exact same amount
2: did they really? Yeah. I would not have guessed that Ringo matched. Now, well, Ringo's
1: team. were songs that didn't chart as high. A lot of them barely hit the top 40. Some of them were cover songs like You're 16. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of them were just kind of goofy you know, Ringo songs. But um, like what's the No-No song? You oh, know?
2: The, the No-No song. Like, so there yes, was like, yeah.
1: essentially some of them were like borderline novelty tunes. Got right? it, yeah. But they did, they all had the exact same amount at that time. Now later on, George Harrison would of course have a huge record um, with, with Cloud9 and um you know at this point I think they were done releasing you know Lennon tracks that they still had. but uh do
2: you think there are any that we still haven't heard
1: no I don't think so I just watched another TikTok about um when they took Free as a Bird um uh, right the Beatles and, anthology and, 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 yeah, and yeah. kind of did their thing with it but I think that was like scraping the bottom of the barrel of anything they had left uh, to yeah. release
2: have not listened to those two tracks since the anthology
1: was they're released
2: they're good you yeah, know it's been a long time um yeah, well, Harrison I
1: mean, Jeff Lynn They should have had George Martin, um, produce them though, because oh, yeah. they sound very <coughs> agreed yellowish. Because yeah. Jeff Lyn produced them. If, if George Martin had produced them, then that would have been perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Harrison, of course, in the late eighties made made a huge run, and the, the traveling Wheelberries inclusion yes. helped. Yep. you know, yep. because they got him on board with Jeff Lyn and just Tom Just working with Tom Petty and all this. Yeah, stuff, yeah, um, but. Yeah, it's. I'm. I'm really surprised. I would have never guessed that they all yeah, had yeah. the same number. Yeah,
1: so. I mean, I, I'm just guessing now. McCartney had something like, you know, 20 plus at the time 25, and then the rest of them had like 14, hmm. 11, something like that. But they're yeah. Now, obviously, the ones by John Lennon were better known. Right. Sure. And a couple from you know, like like a lot of Harrison stuff. Like even this song it, it's not as well known. If you ask somebody to mention George Harrison, they'll they'll say "My Sweet Lord." all those years ago... Um,
2: then they're going to skip ahead to Got My Mind Set on You. Right, <laughs> Really, right. that's...
1: But, but there are other songs oh, that were... Yeah. Um,
2: when Harrison, you know, as I've gotten older, Harrison's become my favorite Beatle. Um, just, I don't know, there's something about just, he's he's not quite, um, he's not as somber as John, he's not as novelty as Ringo, and he's not as...
1: Show-tuney. He's <laughs> not as Broadway yeah, as, as right.
2: McCartney. You know, he's just... There's just something very honest about Harrison.
1: there's that there's this trademark guitar slide sound, uh, of playing that makes him, you know, immediately recognizable. But here's what I find interesting is that the, the chords that he uses um are very Beatlesque. I mean part of what makes the Beatles sound, uh are, are the are the chords that they like to use. And that includes all of them as songwriters. And that's why I think when you hear any post Beatle, it's not just the the it's not just the vocal that reminds us of the Beatles, right? And that's why ELO sounded so much like the Beatles, because they, they used a lot of the same chord arrangements and so forth. But here's my hot take, all right? So listeners, call in, and you can argue this with me. Maybe you want to argue this with me. But the last two or three years of the Beatles, George was by far the best songwriter.
2: Oh, hands down.
1: And and John, and if you watch the Let It Be documentary, you see that John and Paul were were clearly bothered by this in, in the sense that they really... You know, George is like introducing all these now iconic songs, and they're kind of like, oh yeah, that's nice. Okay, what do you have, John?" You know, they just were, I think, threatened by the fact that he really came into his own as a songwriter. I, I think he has the best post-Beatles solo album of all. You know, all things must pass. I don't think any other solo Beatles work comes close to to that record. And um, yeah, yeah, he's the quiet forgotten Beatle, but but that's that's really unfair.
2: Yeah. No, agreed. All right. Well here we go. Um yeah, I I did have Paul on my list for a while. I was gonna go my love and I did think about John. I I thought about photograph by Ringo. I just I don't know. I didn't want it to turn into a Beatles episode, <laughs> I suppose. Right, right. But um, All right, my next selection for this week. Uh this one is set in the hard scrabble section of Chicago and it tells the story of the baddest man in the whole damn town. And that man, of course, is Leroy Brown. The song is by Jim Croce. It comes from the album Life and Times. It was a number one hit uh, and remains still today, Croce's signature song. Leroy Brown, he's big, he's dangerous, he's loved by the ladies, feared by the men. One day he picks a battle he can't win, making a move on the wife of a guy who leaves him looking like a jigsaw puzzle with uh, a few pieces missing, a few pieces gone, if you will. Uh, The story is based on truth, but embellished. Uh, Jim's wife, Ingrid Croce, uh, has actually uh, kind of shared the story uh, in uh, the last few years. Uh, Jim Croce joined the U.S. National Guard. In 66, hoping he would keep him from getting sent to Vietnam. Uh, He married Ingrid that year and hoped to continue his education and launch his music career. Unfortunately, Jim was sent for training less than two weeks after the wedding. And as Ingrid explained, Jim had no interest in being a soldier and had the distinction of having to repeat basic training. Uh, He did meet a guy who inspired one of his most famous songs. Uh, Leroy Brown is a guy that he actually met, said Ingrid. Uh, When he was in the service, the National Guard, this guy had gone AWOL. He was a guy that Jim kind of related to. He liked to sing with him. And this guy had gone AWOL, but he came back to get his paycheck, and he got caught. So Croce just thought that he was such a funny guy that he thought he'd include the name in the song, and it worked. Uh, There really was Leroy Brown, and sometimes having a name helps you build a song around it. Yeah. Uh, Jim Croce would introduce this song uh, on stage, Usually by saying there were two people he encountered in the military who inspired the song. A sergeant at Fort Jackson and a private at Fort Dix. Uh, The actual Leroy was the sergeant, as it turns out. But it was the private who went AWOL and returned for his paycheck. So he he combined the two characters. Uh, Croce had his breakthrough uh, hit in 1972 uh, with the album You Don't Mess Around With Jim, which had hit singles, uh, the title track, and also Operator. That's not the way it feels. Uh, Bad Bad Leroy Brown appeared on the next album, Life and Times. Um, It was his first number one, uh, and uh, on September 30th uh, of 1973, Croce died in a plane crash at age 30. Uh, So he died almost on the heels of Bad Bad Leroy Brown becoming a huge hit. After his death, Time in a Bottle uh, was released as a single, and it too went to number one. The piano riff at the beginning of this song is actually based on, on uh, Bobby Darin's Queen of the Hop, which I didn't know, but I went back to listen after uh, reading that, and yeah, I can totally see it. Uh, as far as Croce's wife, Ingrid, she actually owns and runs Croce's Restaurant and Jazz Bar in San Diego. When I learned about this, I thought, bucket list. <laughs> you know, road trip. Croce's Restaurant and Jazz Bar in San Diego where she keeps Jim's legacy alive. Uh, and she hears from many patrons who were touched by Jim's songs apparently on the daily. Um, Ingrid said that uh, she has a lot of staff members that come up to her and say, you know what, there's a guy here named Leroy Brown. Kind of looks like the part and he's sitting at our bar right now. And Ingrid always tells them, well, I'll be glad to come over and say hi. She said that There are so many Leroy Browns (laughs) who have come up to her and insisted that they are sure they're the one that he is talking about. But uh, yeah, Croce was a peaceful guy. I mean, his songs, there's a there's a current of love and peace and and all the songs that he he records, except for two, two of his the two biggest hits, arguably, other than time uh, in a bottle. They both end in violence, (laughs) Which, um, you know, the first is you don't mess around with Jim, the second Leroy Brown. But in fact, Leroy, um, it, you know, the title character gets even worse than Leroy and you don't mess around with Jim because he gets cut in about a hundred places and shot in a couple more. It's very Uncroachy-like, yeah. uh, the, the two hits. It's just kind of I'm, I'm taken
1: aback now, but I did not know that Time in a Bottle was, was released right after his death because when you listen to the lyrics to that song, my gosh.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then to
1: It was like a premonition almost. Yeah.
2: It's it's kind of eerie. It really is. So hmm. the the other one that's very similar in, in message and tone is would be uh sitting on the dock of the bay by Otis Redding, yeah. which came out uh following his his death in a plane crash. So, yeah,
1: that's that's wow.
2: How many planes have taken how many singers? It's unbelievable. But well, last week you had uh Freebird. Yeah, so, yep, you know, yep, there you yep. had the, the Van Zant's and yep. it is just a it's a recurring theme in rock and roll. All
1: right. Well, my next one comes from the Doobie Brothers. If we're going to be talking about the seventies, we need to have the Doobie oh, yeah. Brothers. I, I I typed Don B. <laughs> typo there in my notes. Not the Don B Brothers, the Doobie Brothers um, from the album Captain. The Captain to Me. Long Train A Runnin'. That, that that catchy guitar riff, that, that drive in rhythm, that, that that central characteristic of the, the the Doobie Brothers blend of rock and funk and soul music. And that's what made the Doobie Brothers so great. Oh yeah. Because everybody in that band was such a versatile musician that could write, that could sing, that could play. And when you have a lineup like that, like, like a Fleetwood Mac, you know, mm-hmm. your music it does not sound stagnant. No. And you know, you let, there are a lot of Doobie Brothers songs I did not know were Doobie Brothers songs. Until I knew they were do brother songs like like Old Black Water. Uh, that, that's the song, right? Is that the name of it?
2: Um, is, oh, yeah.
1: Um, what's the name of that one?
2: It's just, um, oh, damn it. This is one of those senior <laughs> moments. I had it too. I was about to say it and then you. Uh, I'm <inaudible> oh,
1: sorry. <laughs> I can't think uh- it. It's <laughs> But that was one I did not even know was a Doobie Brothers song because it, it felt different than a lot of the other rock songs. It's podcasts. called Water. Yeah, Black Water. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. You,
2: you were right. Jeez, yeah, uh, <laughs> well, my, my God. This okay. song kind of began as a
1: jam, uh, a jam that they would perform live, and it just kind of kept evolving and, uh, over a couple of years from what I understand. And then they just kept kind of playing it, kind of playing it live, and then finally it evolved to a place where it became a song instead of just a jam, and then they decided to record it and release it as a single Um, And then, of course, the Doobie Brothers also contribute something that all of us are still feeling the effects of today. And that is the patron saint of Yacht Rock himself, Mr. Michael McDonald, was uh, a part of the the Doobie Brothers, as well as the many other bands that he sang with over the years.
2: Now, see, here's the thing. I I can recognize pre-Michael McDonald doobies as Mm -hmm. doobie brothers right once you throw michael McDonald into the mix it sounds like a hundred other michael mcdonald songs (laughs) and 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 like a hundred other songs in general because michael mcdonald played he sang background on everything right and you know it's it's just
1: right but but he he sang a couple of lead vocals on on doobie Brothers singles and that's that's yeah that's um, what a full
2: believe is being the big big hit Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah no it's you can't do the 70s if you don't include the doobies. Right. And here's the thing. I mean, you're right about everything you said, but I think overwhelmingly what, what I love most about them is their harmonies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, to me, in in a lot of ways, they're the next evolutionary step from the Beach Boys, you know? Because the harmonies just, they're so layered and they're so rich and there's, it's...
1: And McDonald it, had a large part to this. Oh, he, yeah,
2: he did, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I love that track. I love the album from what you comes. China groves on that one too. It's it's just a great.
1: Yeah, the song reached number 8 on Billboard it, and it earned its place uh, again in the canon of classic rock. So a lot of a lot of canon songs here today that we're talking about. But um yeah, this is um it's another one where like long train run it's not in the refrain, right? Right. And so it's more about what without love
2: they even Where it would it,
1: be now I don't even know if I don't heard. even
2: know if it's in the lyric yeah, yeah. long train running kind so of thing so when it.
1: someone's trying to, to learn about a new genre you know those songs are tough because yeah. because they don't always match but all right yeah no that's I had to put that on there and that's uh from a from a great album and I dig that song you No,
2: know, great choice can't go wrong with the doobies one of my favorite bands all right well this next one never charted um never hit the top 40 um it is by Little Feet, and it is the self. Uh, well, it's 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 the album is of the same name. It's it's Dixie Chicken. this track i just i don't know i don't even know why about this song though i'll catch myself just singing it randomly it's just one of those songs that just pops might get my that head. checked out i might yeah. yeah um because it's uh i, I don't know it's it's, it's it's a fun it's a fun number though um this song is of the i've been there variety i guess um the story is of a man who meets a woman he believes is the love of his life in the lobby of the commodore hotel and immediately makes a lifelong commitment to her promising her the storied house on the edge of town with the white picket fence but in the end she leaves him crying in his beer Okay, uh, the narrator is telling the story to a bartender about how much he loved her and how badly he misses her and then one at a time other guys in the bar start, start adding to his story until he realizes they've all been scammed by the same girl and in the end they're all singing in harmony about the Dixie Chicken and having a wistful but hearty laugh about all being part of this well populated men's group and that's, that's the song, uh, you know, in summary. Dixie Chicken is the title track, um, as I said. It was Little Feet's third album. It sported a new lineup with Kenny Gradney replacing Roy Estrada on bass and conga player uh, Sam Clayton and guitarist Paul Barrere added. Uh, the new sound was less blues rock and more New Orleans-style Dixieland, making the title apropos. Uh, Little Feet frontman Lil George wrote this song with Martin Kibbe who is credited as Fred Martin the pair were in a band together before Little Feet formed Kibbe wrote the lyric which was sparked when he drove past a sign in Los Angeles that said Dixie Chicken which was apparently advertising a restaurant he says that by the time he drove home he had the lyric written in his head um, to promote the song the band delivered fried chicken to radio stations with Lou George in a chicken suit hmm. And the box is red, finger-pickin' good, a play on the Kentucky Fried Chicken finger-lickin' good slogan. And it had the girl from the album cover in place of Colonel Sanders on the boxes of fried chicken they would deliver. Um, Like their first two albums, Dixie Chicken sold quite poorly at first, but the group was signed to Warner Brothers, which tended to sign bands they believed in and gave them time to find an audience. When Little Feet hit the road, they picked up Momentum and found a following. Their next album, Feet's Don't Fill Me Now, sold 500,000 copies, and their 1978 album, Waiting for Columbus, sold a million. Uh, the song Dixie Chicken, Little Heard when it was first released, has since become a favorite, or or was a favorite, on album-oriented rock radio, or even still exists. Mm. In, the, in the age of satellite radio, I don't know if it's a thing anymore on, on, I mean, a, on the AM-FM dial, I mean.
1: WMMS is kind of still...
2: Yeah, possibly.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, it became a favorite on AOR-formatted uh, stations there for a while and, and on classic rock. Uh, despite their success, it was a rough ride for Little Feet. Uh, Low George produced Dixie Chicken himself and dominated the album. His bandmates took more control of subsequent releases, and there was always a lot of tension. Uh, by 79, the group broke up, and two months later, George died while touring as a solo artist. Um, Garth Brooks, which will not be on our under- mentioned lists because he's not available on Spotify but oh uh, is he not no that's why I've never included him when we did the friends episode I totally would have done One friends in huh? Low places yeah for whatever reasons Garth Brooks has no the only place you can find Garth Brooks is Amazon he's not on Spotify huh. um, but yeah Garth Brooks recorded a cover of this for his 92 album The Chase uh, surprisingly the country singer had never heard the tune until the early 90s when he was listening to music on his tour bus and it started playing Trisha Yearwood sang harmony on Brooks's version of the song um, yeah, I just love this tune. And, it, you know, having went to Memphis uh, on vacation, just doing the Blues Highway a few years back, I made a, I made a stop into the Commodore Hotel. Mm, and uh, Cool. i I tell you what, the bar in that hotel, yeah. what song do you think was playing when I walked in?
1: Dixie yeah, Chicken. Yeah.
2: Uh, they, they take great pride <laughs> in, the, in the number, so... Um, but the people that work there love that. I'm sure... I've, I I don't know. <laughs>
1: it's like any like working at uh, any of those places that uh, yeah. erupt in song and every hour and.
2: Well, it wasn't that kind of bar. It wasn't it was, that kind. No, it was it just, a... just pl- it was playing on. It literally was on the jukebox as I walked in. That's I don't funny. know if a tourist programmed it before I I entered or what happened or if they just have it on repeated shuffle. But um, yeah, it uh, it was playing when I walked into the bar. Though it was kind of kind of funny. Very cool.
1: All right, getting down the list here. Um, My next one is the very, very, very first hit for Daryl Hall and John Oates from the album *Abandoned Luncheonette*. The song is "She's Gone."
0: Try to bomb me with a sermon But it's plain to say That they can't comfort me I'm sorry, Charlie, for the imposition I think I think I I got, I got the strength To carry on, yeah I need a drink and a quick decision now it's up to me. who I will be. She's gone. She's gone. Oh, I, oh, I. I better learn how to face She's gone. She's gone. Oh, I, oh, I. I paid the devil to replace her. She's gone. And she's gone. Oh, I. What went wrong?
1: Paul and Oates, I love this. They, you know, they titled their greatest hits record, Rock and Soul Part 1. Yeah. Probably not a good idea until you're sure you're going to have enough new content for Part 2. Correct. Because that never <laughs> happened. No. There is no Part 2. Uh, I always felt like a better title would have been Pop and Soul. You know, they're, they're a pop and soul band.
2: Yeah, they're not rock.
1: I'm not really a rock band. Pop and Soul, and that would be an accurate title because... There's a great example of the soul. With she's gone, that that really kind of highlights. And I had a hard time understanding that when I was again kind of breaking into music and learning and talking to people and stuff. And I once asked somebody what soul music was, and they basically said, "Yeah, it's it's it's, it's black, you know, music." Um, but then I'd look at the charts, and I would see like Notes, Wham, and I'm like, "Well, I don't understand why are you know they're obviously white." And I just didn't understand the nuance of it. I didn't understand the style of music, you know. But there were a lot of bands like like. You know, notes, um, who audiences didn't know were white, and I'm not saying them specifically, mm-hmm. but oh, yeah, uh, you know, until the album came out because they were able to, to kind of harness uh, that sound.
2: Well, the Righteous Brothers going back to the 60s were always labeled soul, right? Um, it, it's I mean, soul by definition is gospel tinged, you sure, know, it, sure. it's it's it comes from the same evolutionary beginnings as uh, as blues, really, it's right? Spirituals being uh, hymnals turned gospel, and then the offshoots but um yeah i i love soul i mean soul is my bread and butter and i still don't know that i could really define it it's right. it's just a sound yeah you know it, there's no other way to describe it. it's
1: culture club was they were all on the yeah. soul oh, yeah. um, tracks too yeah, absolutely so. but i don't feel like it was ever a genre that was totally um appropriated no right because no. it, it's still today seen as, as a black form of expression uh, unlike rock and roll, which is now no longer seen as a black form of
2: expression. Correct, so. correct, yeah.
1: Um, during the promotion of the single, this was interesting. So, you know, they're from Philly, from Philly and um, a, a local kind of like bandstand type show um, asked them to... Um, perform i wonder if it was you know it's funny i wonder if it really was bandstand or not
2: well if it's out of philly I would yeah
1: probably think it probably was so. although in my research it just simply said uh you know local dance show. probably was
2: yeah it has to be dick clark i mean that that was the show in philly so
1: they yeah okay that makes well sense. well did but that was also nationally yeah
2: i was gonna say did dick clark stay in philly though once yeah. it was picked up nationally yeah, i don't think it might have moved to la yeah, it might have been York. another
1: local it definitely was a local yeah. dance show yeah Anyway, they, um, they wanted them to come on and, and, and quote, perform, which meant um, lip-syncing to the song and making it look like you were actually performing. Um, Hall & Oates, even though nobody really knew who they were, um, did not want to do that. It felt very disingenuous to themselves. They had no problem lip-syncing when it was definitely a conceptual thing, but to lip-sync and make it look like it's a live performance, they had a problem with. So this is where Hollow Notes Oates is a little ahead of their time. Um, they instead made a music video. I haven't seen it. I guess it's pretty bad. But they made a music video for She's Gone where they did lip sync, but again, it was more conceptual. They weren't trying to portray a, as a live performance. And they turned it in to the show, and the show, uh, not only did they refuse to play it, uh, they hated it so bad, and they were so miffed that they wouldn't come on the show and, and play play the game like they were supposed to that they tried to get their songs banned from Philadelphia rock stations. Really? Yeah. Because you know Hall Notes wouldn't play ball, and they and they and they tried to change the concept. Of course, what seven years later, eight years later, it's all about music video. So in a, in a way, Hall Notes was was ahead of their time. Hmm. Not that there weren't other like promotional films and videos made. I'm not saying they were the first, but they, it just that idea of hey, we can still lip and have fun with the music, but we're not going to pretend that it's us performing live.
2: Interesting. Um, YouTube would probably have it. Gonna have yeah, to, no, I'm gonna, sure. Gonna have, just have to look, look it up. up yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: She's Gone um, initially was not successful. Again, kind, kind of proving my point that music uh, chart success is more about promotion um, and, and airplay than it is about an actual song just being good. Uh, because when it was initially released, it only reached number 60 on the Hot 100. But the song was re-released in 1976 after Hall & Oates had seen some commercial success and the exact same song, same version, same recording, went to number 7.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Um. Was that uh, in between? In the in between, would uh, "Rich Girl" have come? My out? My guess
1: is like "Rich Girl," making my dreams come true. I, I'm guessing yeah. those songs would have.
2: Yeah, because I was well, "Rich Girl" especially. I, I mean, you're talking the same time period as yeah. she's gone because they they both had that similar right sound before right. the the synthesizers became a part of Hot
1: right. Notes. But I like this song too because you get more of a, a John Oates is a lot more present yeah. on the record with with vocals. Yeah. with he and, and Daryl Hall both sharing vocals more equally. Um, I love the lyrics. Again, I'm not a lyrics guy, but you know when he talks about the the carbon monoxide choking his thoughts away, and oh yeah, it's just great. There's great imagery, and it really is a great breakup song. It um, is. It's a really sad song. It's
2: yeah. When he's talking about looking at himself in the mirror, he's not looking any younger, and he sees the. Of course,
1: he's probably twenty at the time. Yeah, anyway.
2: absolutely. And you know, there's one less toothbrush in the stand. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's it's very vivid imagery. It's yeah. very. Um...
1: And it was co-written. Um, uh, I think it was John that had the the chorus, and brought it to Daryl, and and Daryl liked the chorus, and so the two of them wrote the, the verses together. So, yeah, it's just uh, it, it again. It's kind of like Queen from from last half of the episode was we you know with keep yourself alive kind of was the the starting point to to where they would have all. And this is the starting point of Hall Note. So the band that eventually would. Be the pop kings of, oh, yeah. of the early '80s with Private Eyes, and
2: they the best-selling duo in music history.
1: It started. It started with uh, yeah. with this very mellow sound, soulful yeah. sound.
2: Okay, yeah, love Holland Oates, and and you're right. This is one that I and mean, Oates is singing. He's he's yep. definitely. I and mean, the vocal track is. You, you don't get that once you hit, you know, eighty two, eighty three. Oates is just playing guitar and doing his thing. And well, that,
1: that, and that's always the joke. Like, like what's he doing there? Like, yeah. what, what's he bringing to the party? Which he's, is unfair because he's... He's,
2: he's bringing the porn stash. That's, <laughs> that's what he's He's, he's, he's writing bringing.
1: songs, he's playing guitar, he's singing backup, yeah. he's, he's doing a lot. The same joke would, would people made about Eric Garfunkel not realizing that he, you know, sang right. Bridge Over Troubled Water and provided the harmony. Well, and
2: that's where the satire uh, oats and garfunkel or is it garfunkel and oats i don't remember which it is but um i used i I love listening to them and Uh, um,
1: especially the backdoor song (laughs) yeah oh it's hilarious yeah
2: all right um my next one uh this one did not chart either this is two in a row that never hit the top 40 um this is another southern rock staple uh it's by the marshall tucker band and they had uh In 1973, their first release was the eponymously titled album. And from that album comes the track, Can't You See? this became the anthem song for the Marshall Tucker band. It, it's uh, rated uh, in, in a lot of surveys and by a lot of music critics to be on par with Freebird by Leonard Skinner and its influence on the Southern rock genre. Uh, never a top 40 hit, but very popular on AOR stations. And it continues to get a lot of airplay on classic rock stations still today. Uh, the song was written by lead singer and guitarist toy Caldwell, who drew inspiration from a failed relationship and, and the pain of lost love. The open on this one is really unusual. Um, It starts with the picking of a guitar and the playing of a flute. Uh, Jerry Eubanks of the Marshall Tucker Band played the flute, giving the song a very distinctive sound. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to find any other song in, in southern rock that features a flute. You know, especially yeah, in, Southern
1: rock, yeah, 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 especially in its I mean, rock in general. It's, it's well, yeah. Tough I mean, outside find. of Jethro
2: Toll, you know, where, where else do you find <laughs> there are a couple? It? But yeah, but uh, yeah, no. This one, I mean, the flute is you know front and center from the opening uh, opening bars. Um, what I found interesting, and I never knew this: there is no Marshall Tucker in the Marshall Tucker Band. They saw the name on a key ring where they used to rehearse, and they just decided it would make a good name for their band. <laughs> So there is no Marshall Tucker in the Marshall Tucker. I never knew that. I never knew that. I did not know that either. I was surprised by that one. Uh, the song was named the number one greatest Southern rock song ever recorded by Ultimate Classic Rock with Sweet Home Alabama as runner-up. Uh, the site said, the next time you hear this song in public, take notice and you'll make the strangest observation, especially if there's booze involved. Okay. They said, and and uh, I guess this comes from documented I I don't know where they found the information. Uh, But, yeah, Ultimate Classic Rock says that there seems to be something about this particular song that makes the majority, very ironically, close their eyes and sway their head from left to right while singing the song's famous Can't You See line. They said that that universal connection earns this song the top spot on our Southern Rock Songs list. So, I I did some more research because I thought, well, man, that seems really... how, How do you... You know, how do you find a credible source to actually show that this right, is true? Right. I looked it up on a few other websites of you know different you know, different websites that had no connection to to ultimate classic rock, and they all reported the same thing that allegedly. And I I don't know I've never looked around a bar when this comes on, but during the "Can't You See" line, all of these websites all agreed that if people are drinking, they close their eyes when singing that that lyric it's the weirdest yeah it's the weirdest thing so i'm I'm gonna do my own study i of course the the hard part here is i need to find a bar that actually has can't you see in the jukebox (laughs) i don't know how likely that is but i'm on i'm on the lookout now i'm looking for a bar with a lot of drunk patrons with a jukebox that features marshall tucker so i can actually see if this is true um i don't know maybe i should just play it and have gail tell me if i close my eyes i I don't know (laughs) but i found (laughs) it i'm gonna be very self-conscious yeah i found it over and over again on on a number of sites and i'm thinking there has to be something to it if all these sites are reporting it but again i don't know how you could actually measure that in a a sample i don't know i just found it really interesting
1: i guess just set up a video camera um, night after night after a bar you know with enough resolution that you can zoom in on faces and I don't know. I know. It's strange.
2: <laughs> seems like a lot of work to find out. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there are the things something. that
1: probably could be studied to help humanity. Better than yeah, that.
2: Yeah, but you know, and this this takes uh, priority absolutely. Your turn.
1: All right. Well, surprise, surprise, Steely Dan again. I, I had to do it. Nineteen seventy three. The album Countdown to Ecstasy. My old school. This is one of those songs that I didn't have, I had no clue what it was about until I looked into it. Always enjoyed the lyrics, but didn't know if it was metaphoric or if there was actually something to it, and there's definitely something to it. Um, Donald Fagan and, and Walter Becker went to Bard College in the 60s, and in 1969 there was a major drug bust where 44 students were arrested, including Mr. Fagan himself, whose long hair was cut in a small jail outside of Poughkeepsie, New York. Wow, that's a little bit of a violation of his civil rights, I would think.
2: And in New York, I would expect yeah. that in the South, yeah, but up, that's surprisingly upstate
1: New York. Uh, yeah. Apparently, a female acquaintance sold him out. So, if you listen to the lyrics, it's pretty straight when he when he he talks about being being sold out um, by by a woman, and who um, I, I'm not sure if. Uh, she, she did it because they broke up and she was trying to be vindictive or she was trying to save herself. I don't know this the story, but apparently this woman was a part of, of his downfall in this respect. Um, the old, my old school features, like, all oh, Steely Dan, right? A complex arrangement of guitars, horns, keyboards, as well as memorable chorus, jazzy instrumental break, and... Um, Believe it or not, it's been covered by a couple bands, and I I got to hear this. We got to see if it's on Spotify. Apparently, there's a version of "My Old School" by the Zach Brown Band.
2: Really? Yes. <laughs> That's a combination I didn't. Exactly. Interesting.
1: Exactly. I thought that was was. I, I need to hear that. Um, Fish also has a, a version, which I I guess I can see more than I can see Zach Brown, but
2: yeah, more than more than the country, but. I still don't I I can't see fish performing it either though not really. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting.
1: But yeah, so it's just simply a story about this drug bust and um uh, uh, G Gordon Liddy, who I guess he was the prosecutor at the time. Um is mentioned, he's Big Daddy, Daddy G that they refer to. So um yeah, and, and he says I'm never going back and he never did. After after that he was expelled from school and uh and he never went back to uh, Allendale, which I believe is the the town referenced right, where, yeah. where Bart's college is, so yeah it's not it's an actual autobiographical
2: story well I'm on spotify they they do not have Zach Brown's version
1: okay. well you know, when they, a lot of times when when you read lists of covers it's like probably live like, or, like yeah, yeah like you mentioned r e m doing I forget what song you said and, and I'm like, well... or you too oh, radar Love. oh yeah I yeah. mean I, you too i I have everything that they ever released officially, and I don't have a version of radar Love from them, so yeah. it must have been live it had to have been live yeah. at some point but
2: huh. That's too bad. I would have loved to have heard Zach Brown's version of My Old School." Yeah. I'm not even that probably, actually, It might be on YouTube somewhere. It, yeah, probably but I can't even like associate what that would sound like. Um, interesting.
1: But that's like lines about you know, surprised to find you with the working, working girls in the county jail. And, like all right. that just just in recounting exactly what happened.
2: Yeah. Speaking of working girls. Ah. My next uh, selection comes from the 1973 album Tres Hombres. Uh, it Hit number 43. It just bubbled under the top 40. But it was the biggest hit by ZZ Top until 1983's Gimme All Your Lovin'. The name of the song is LaGrange.
0: Rumors to right outside again. You know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you're gonna go to that whole mile on the range. They got a lot of nice girls. Huh? I'm ready.
2: love it uh it is a song about a whorehouse let's just (laughs) let's just call it what it is uh many people in texas knew about it but when the song was released it drew so much attention to the illegal activities going on there that they actually had to cease operations okay the name of the whorehouse was the chicken ranch which is very famous um i i remember you know i've i've read about the chicken ranch a number of places it comes up uh a lot in popular culture, actually. It was uh, run by Miss Edna. It was her boarding house in the town of LaGrange, Texas. Um, and it was the oldest establishment in Texas catering to the oldest profession. Uh, it was closed down by a zealous TV reporter from Houston who couldn't find enough vice and corruption to report about or to report on in Houston. So he had to drive out of his way, and he challenged the governor on the issue of why it continued to operate in fairly plain sight, and the governor had no choice but to order the sheriff to close it. Uh, Miss Edna's girls had weekly visits from the local doctors, so they were clean. The girls spent their money in LaGrange, and when a new hospital was needed, Miss Edna gave the first and largest donation for the hospital. Uh, The reporter remained on the air, crusading against such hideous crimes such as slime in the ice machines of restaurants. He just went after everybody, apparently. Uh, most of the building does still stand today. Only a room, one room of uh, Miss Edna's boarding house, was moved to Dallas, and today is used as a nightclub. Uh, it was ten. It was a ten to get in. Uh, it was ten dollars to enter. That was all you had to pay. And there was strict dress code for patrons. Only sharp-dressed men Mm. were allowed in. Were
1: they looking for some tush?
2: I don't know. But uh, (laughs) that was actually, you know, sharp-dressed men was was, uh, referenced there. And I'm wondering if perhaps... Maybe that song was a callback to, to LaGrange uh, 10 years later. I don't know. Uh, the place in the song, uh, The Chicken Ranch, it is the subject of the 1982 movie, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, starring Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds, which was adapted from a 1978 Broadway play.
1: My grandpa loved that movie. He? he just laughed so hard. Yeah. Um, in
2: a 1985 interview with Spin Magazine, ZZ Top bass player Dusty Hill explained... Um, to them he said did you ever see the movie the best little whorehouse in texas that's what this song is about he said i went there when i was 13 he said a lot of boys in texas when it's time to be a guy they went there to have it done and he said fathers took their sons there it was a rite of passage in the texas community he said you couldn't cuss in there you couldn't drink it had an air of respectability miss edna would stand for no bs he said And that was the woman that ran the place. And he said, you know, she looked nothing like Dolly Parton. (laughs) (laughs) He said uh, she was a mean-looking woman. um, But oil field workers and senators, he said, would both be there uh, entertaining themselves. Uh, The place had been open for over 100 years. And then this a-hole reporter, he said, decides he's going to do an expose and he closes it down. He stirred up so much
1: Crap. <laughs> crap, yeah. Um,
2: in the interview with Spin, by the way, uh, there, there are a lot of words here that I'm trying to edit myself from using. Uh, he said, uh, the reporter stirred up so much crap that it had to close. Uh, LaGrange is a little bitty town, and little towns in Texas are real conservative, but they fought against it. They didn't want it closed, apparently, because it was like a landmark. It was on a little ranch outside of town. Anyway, um, he said, we wrote this song and put it out, and it was out maybe three months before they closed the place down. He said, it pissed me off. It pissed off Billy Gibbons, who also frequented the place. He said, it was a whorehouse, but anything that lasts 100 years, there's got to be a reason. Interesting. Yeah. The music, I guess, itself is based on a John Lee Hooker song called Boogie Chillin'. Uh, I know Hooker, um, and I know his blues. I know Boogie Chillin'. I guess I can see it. I I haven't went back to listen very closely, but... um, in 1992, Bernard Besman, who owned the copyright to Boogie Chillin', claimed that, it had just recently, that he had just recently heard the song and he sued ZZ Top in 92, And then after years of litigation, a court ruled that Boogie Chillin' was actually in the public domain and ZZ Top was not liable. So, that lawsuit went nowhere. Uh, this was ZZ Top's biggest hit at the time. They were big in Texas, but they were not nationally known until their 75 album, Fandango, which led to their 76-77 to 77 worldwide Texas tour. I guess on the tour, they played on a stage shaped like the state of Texas, adorned with native plants, cacti, and native animals. They had buzzards and buffalo on stage with them. No armadillo? No, I didn't say anything about armadillo. I don't know. Uh, The song is an example of Texas sound, though, that ZZ Top developed. Southern rock was big at the time, but Texas had its own thing, and ZZ Top modeled their music on a gunslinger image drawing inspiration from their proximity to Mexico. So... Yeah, I, I just love this tune. There's something about the laugh, huh? Oh, oh, you yeah, know what he's, right. you know, and there's it, it just. And here's the thing: I'm a lyrics guy. I don't know that I ever knew this song was about the chicken ranch. Yeah, I did the research and I went back and I listened to the lyrics. and I'm like, holy hell! I've I've listened to this song my whole life. I never actually listened to the lyrics on this one, so it was kind of eye opening because I did not pick the song, you know, knowing <laughs> that that's what it was about, and then now I know so uh, there's a learning experience this week going into ZZ Top and LaGrange oh very good
1: well my last pick we've made it to the end and you talked about this uh, this record when we did our openers uh, episode I'm going with the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John
2: oh yes
0: too young to be
1: That was the one that was tough because he had um, uh, three number one songs uh, that year Crocodile Rock, Daniel, and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Actually, might have had more. Uh, Benny and the Jets might have hit number one too. Yeah,
2: yeah Benny definitely did.
1: But oh. this uh, but at the time when this was released it was the yeah. third number one of the year.
2: Benny might have crossed over to 74 though. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, he was he was busy Elton, they had it was like a machine he, no wonder that he struggled with substance abuse because in this very, very short period of time, from 1970 to about 1976, he was putting out two, sometimes three records a year. Yeah,
2: I don't know when the man slept.
1: And just touring, and and we talked before, a lot of his deeper tracks and some of those albums were, were not as great, you know. Um, but, you know, he was making money, making money for the, the record company. So is this um, John and Toppin's finest piece of music? Many think so and I think I could be persuaded quite easily to make that case I mean, there's a lot of great music the two of them made over the course of of the uh, What almost five decades now? Yeah, Um, but for my money. This one is hard to beat. it really is Um, In fact when I saw Elton for the first time it was in 1986. It was the breaking hearts um, tour And I still did not know a lot of older Elton John stuff, you know, I, I knew too Low for Zero because that was hit. I'm Still Standing Kiss the Bride that's why uh, they cult the blues um, but when I saw him live and he played this song it it stuck out more, more than any other song that I heard that night that I didn't know and I just remember asking I think it was with my dad like what is this song like this I gotta go home and, and hear this song again and, and it's just something about the melody something about the the delivery of the song just, mm-hmm. just reached out to me yeah um Toppin says that the song is primarily autobiographical. I've chosen a lot of autobiographical songs this episode. He explained that it, 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 it's not; it's been misinterpreted that he like resented the success that that they had. He didn't. He didn't resent the success. He he just was afraid of forgetting his roots, afraid afraid of forgetting you know who he was, and it was his reminder that with all the glitz and glam of. LA and 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 the music scene and all that that went with it you know so many people fundamentally change who they are and they and sometimes can become very awful people and they they forget who where they came from you know and, and and the working class that you know propelled them to this place and so it was just kind of his reminder um to you know that's not what it's all about it's not about the glitz and the glam it's about uh, the core people that that we are um, I love the metaphor, the imagery of the song, the fact that it's supported by this wider context of, uh, you even mentioned, I think, the cinematic nature oh, yeah. of, of this record. And so you take um, one of the, the, the greatest films in, in, in movie history, uh, The Wizard of Oz, and, and use that as a metaphor um, for the band and, and their experiences it's just it's perfect
2: well, and I, he used it again for his farewell tour yep. yeah, that was
1: my next note yeah. um, that you know we just saw him on the farewell tour and, uh, and the whole tour was modeled after this song and this idea and it's the song that he closes with and it's just a perfect um, perfect way for him to to bow out spend time with his family which I know is very important to him um, I'd like to say there might be a time when you know the family gets old the kids get older and he comes out of retirement and does one more but I don't know it's tough but physically I don't know if he'd be up for it in another 10 years
2: yeah I don't know I mean, he's he's getting up there and they all are right you know um, yeah I, one of my favorite songs by Elton I and um, it's it's all in the melody on this one it's just so there, there's something infectious about it I've always wondered you know who the hell hunts hornyback toads <laughs> but I, I the, the lyrics are just they're so pure and they're so they capture a breakup i think in such raw lyric here of course it's a bad breakup because he feels abused and and he feels like you know he's he's her toy i suppose more than her lover but mm-hmm. it, it's 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 a sad song but it always it's one of those songs that i don't know singing it just makes me happy
1: it's gotta um, be one of elton john's greatest hooks too
2: oh without question yeah
1: and and taupin was infatuated with the myth of the american west mm-hmm. yeah he was um the, the whole title captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy around cowboy is is bernie taupin mm-hmm. and he i think grew up in a very rural setting in england um and so he was just way more comfortable in that setting than in the big city and so, if you look at a lot of his early lyrics, especially the autobiographical "Captain Fantastic" record, mm-hmm. um, but the, but lo- look at look at records like um, um, "Tumbleweed Connection." Oh yeah, you know it, it's 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 a love letter to this mythical West, and so it makes sense. The horny back toad, like like that's what Bernie Toppin would rather be doing rather than going to some party with a bunch of people in tuxedos. He'd rather be, you know, out out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. and and I think that's what kind of sums that up
2: yeah um, beautiful song well, always one of my favorites I am um, I'm glad you chose it because I, I had Elton on my list for a short while I was going to go Daniel um, but I think you made the right pick I I don't know there's just something about there's every, every track on this album I mean we've already talked about mm-hmm. it Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is just it, it it is the very best of Elton John and the title track is just phenomenal so all right. Well, now I give you the last uh, track from uh, my list, and this was another artist who was, for a very long time, compared to Elton John, um, and uh, neither artist really understood the comparison. They both played piano, of course, but uh, their sound was nothing alike. Um, this one hit number twenty-five. Was it did not even hit the top twenty, uh, but. Everybody knows it. Everybody sings along. And it is considered one of the greats of all time now, 50 years after its release. I'm talking about Piano Man by Billy Joel. Piano Man, of course, today is Billy Joel's signature song. It was his first major hit and instantly established him as a talented singer and songwriter. Um, By now, I would assume many people know the story behind the song, but maybe not. Um, He found himself in a very bad deal. Uh, He signed on to a very bad contract, did not favor him at all with Family Productions. And Joel essentially took a break from the music industry, writing songs and taking a temporary gig playing piano. At the executive room a bar on Wilshire Boulevard in LA uh, he, he went west to try and escape his contract and remained hidden uh, refusing to put out another album uh, at that time he billed himself as Bill Martin Martin is Billy Joel's middle name and many of the bars customers there at the executive room uh, were down on their luck and the people of course named in the song these are real people these were uh, frequent customers they were um, you know, commonly in the bar, they, they were regulars, uh, such as John, the bartender who aspires to be an actor. That is a reference to Billy's friend and then manager, John Troy, Paul, the real estate novelist was a guy who, uh, dreamt of writing the great American novel, but was a real estate agent and refused to pursue his dream. Davey, also a real person, uh, was, uh, was, and probably would always be in the Navy, for life, that was uh, his his aspiration, I suppose. The the farthest he wanted to go. And the waitress practicing politics was actually Billy Joel's wife at the time. Really, Elizabeth Elizabeth was it was Elizabeth Small became Elizabeth Joel. Right. Yeah, she took a job as a cocktail waitress at the same bar. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that one either. That one was new to me. Um, basically, all these regulars they come to the bar to commiserate with each other. Uh, they share a drink rather than drink alone which is one of the great Billy Joel lyrics we used to play a game I don't know if you remember this where we'd we would name a Billy Joel song and we'd we'd decide what was the lyric do you remember when we used to I do don't that? remember that but we, that sounds like something we yeah did we did it all the time we would, we'd go to um, Brad House on Ice Night and we would oh sit there gosh, in the booth night. yeah we'd sit there in the booth and we'd play the Billy Joel lyric song
1: dollar dollar yeah uh, Michelob Ice was it
2: Michelob uh, Bud I don't know it was, it was
1: one of the Ice, ice House ice perhaps beers, yeah but
2: yeah. Um, yeah they had Ice Night and I, I vividly remember for like a, a, for like a series of like Thursday nights for like two months in a row we went and we sat in the we plunked ourselves down in the booth and we played the, the yeah, Billy well, Joel that, lyric. that sounds on par um, but yeah we always for Piano Man we always came back to that they're sharing a drink they call loneliness but it's better than drinking alone it is one of the great lines oh, by Billy Joel um And as in many piano bars, particularly in that era, the music of the piano man lifts their spirits with song, right? And in the last verse, the focus shifts to the piano man. The patrons recognize that theirs is very gifted, and they question why someone as talented as him is stuck in a place like this, asking, man, what are you doing here? It's a question Billy Joel probably also asked himself, and one that we all ask ourselves at some point in our lives, Uh, Musically, the song is relatively simple. It's in C major with a descending bass line and in three-quarter time. It's actually a waltz, according to Billy Joel. Uh, The introduction is a short jazzy riff, sounding like someone casually playing on the piano, and then the song's distinctive harmonica comes in, which was an obvious nod to Dylan. Uh, The piano is the main instrument, of course, but it's nicely accented by a mandolin. Um, Lyrically, Billy Joel's song, uh, many of his most clever lines are in there. Son, can you play me a memory when I wear a younger man's clothes? Um, I don't know. There's just... It's a beautiful song, you know? And uh, Billy Joel paints a vivid scene of the bar and its patrons, I think. Um, many, I guess, compared Piano Man upon its release to Harry Chapin's story songs like Taxi uh, or I Want to Learn a Love Song. A comparison that I guess was apt... I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Harry Chapin. I see... The, the narrative in their song structures, but I think it's too limiting to describe Billy Joel generally. I, mean, I don't think, I don't know. I was surprised to see that in a number of sites yeah, that yeah. I visited that they compared, compared him to Harry Chapin more than Elton John actually, which I don't know, I kind of hmm. wasn't expecting that. Uh, despite the melancholy of the song, it's not a depressing song. That's one of the things I love about it. The piano music brings the bar patrons a momentary respite from the drudgery of their lives. And, Beyond the literal meaning of the song, it is easy to find a broader meaning. Uh, The song can be seen as an allegorical description of the human condition, the role that art plays in it. We are all essentially alone. We cling to each other for company, each one of us pursuing our own dreams, but ultimately settling for much less. And we try to find comfort in a drink, uh, a tonic and gin, but it's art and music that gives us real hope and relief from the condition. It's precisely what Billy's music has provided to so many fans over the years. That's why he's one of our uncles. So... Um, I don't know I I think you know perhaps it, this is why the simple song about a piano bar is so popular it's the most downloaded Billy Joe song on iTunes still today it speaks universally about the human condition about our need to be with each other our need for art and inspiration to uplift our lives Um, we're all in the mood for a melody you got us feeling alright
1: it, it always felt to me more timeless than his earlier stuff too. In fact, when I was just getting into Billy Joel, I was really surprised how early this came in his discography. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's just because of the context, the fact that it was played on radio and so forth. But you listen to a lot of those early tracks on Piano Man and, and Street Life Serenade. And they do sound a little dated. Um, oh, they do. They they, yeah. don't, they just, especially, you know, the Moog synthesizer that he used oh, yeah. obsessively and, and Traveling mm-hmm. Prayer and I mean, why introduce your album with yeah. with a song that does not at all represent the style of music that you plan to to perform? Yeah, I,
2: I never understood why Piano Man was not the opening track. Right, right. I, I never understood that.
1: And so that's why there's just, it always stood out above all the other songs. Yeah. Of course, there's other great ones too, like Captain Jack and, uh, you and know.
2: Got Ballad of the Kid. Yeah, there's, there's great songs. But you, but. but you also have in those first two albums Weekend Song and Ain't No Crime and Stop in the Nevada. I mean, it's, I think Billy Joel, like any first Albums. I mean, it wasn't his first. He had Cold Spring Harbor first, but he was trying to discover his sound. He sure. Didn't yeah. know what he, was, what he was able to do or what, what, you know, sound. And
1: he'd done everything from Attila to psychedelic yeah. uh, hard rock to... To uh, it's a
2: blues rock in the 60s, yeah. 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 The man played piano on Leader of the Pack. Yes, <laughs> so he did. He did. It's like, yeah, he has a long, long list of credits before he ever became uh, the, the star that we know him as today. And of course, today he still sells out The Garden, Uh, in New York monthly, and yet the man hasn't recorded a new album since 1993.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. When when Famous Last Words came out.
2: Remember, we were like, I hope he's just being metaphorical. Yeah. Nope. (laughs) Nope, he wasn't. Um, But that's okay. I mean, he does not... Billy Joel, really, for as much as I love the guy, he has a lot of filler, and he really doesn't have a large catalog. Mm -mm. He really doesn't. I mean, when you compare him to someone... Someone like a, I mean, a Springsteen.
1: Springsteen. Dumb. Oh,
2: there's so much music that still has not been released right. by by some of these, you know, artists. Billy Joel. I'm I'm confident we've heard everything now, and but it's still, I don't know what it is about his music because he's, I mean, he didn't make it on our openers, you know, but uh, that's largely because I don't, I can't name a single opening track other than maybe Anthony's song that. Would deserve to be. Yeah,
1: you know. his openers were always like they're, easy money, yeah, traveling prayer. They're all, yeah, they're all Los Angelinos. I and
2: mean, you got big shot, and you you may be right, but those are fun. They're they're rocking yeah. songs, but they're not epic right. openings. Right. I don't
1: know. Oh, Allentown is a good. good one.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Because
1: oh. he comes back at the end with the reprise. Right. Yeah.
2: Where's the orchestra? Yeah. Didn't think about Allentown. All right, well, that is twenty four songs Woo! from the year I was born, the year uh for all intents and purposes, Dave uh entered the world as well. I'm an
1: honorary seventy three yeah.
2: he was here a month and a day, right a month and a day before yeah, seventy three Sounds right yeah. yeah yeah so um yeah, so fifty years ago, uh Dave and Al w- kind of wandered into the world, and this was our soundtrack. so hopefully if we have any seventy three babies out there, this brought back some memories, or at the very least. Uh, it helps you to kind of put into perspective the 50 years that have passed. So,
1: Well, we got to decide what order. These are going to go on a mixtape. We do. So we will be right back after this.
2: All right. So uh, this one, it wasn't hard to put into order, um, but approaching it, we really didn't know what to expect. Um, this is what we have come up with. We open our mixtape with Dire Maker or Jamaica, 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 Jamaica Jamaica? Jamaica, Jamaica? um, by Led Zeppelin. Uh, That is followed by Ballroom Blitz by Sweet, Radar Love by Golden Earring, Into Right Place, Wrong Time by Dr. John, and LaGrange by ZZ Top. That is followed by Rocky Mountain Way, Joe Walsh, We're an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad, followed by Keep Yourself Alive by Queen, Into the Acoustic Give Me Love by George Harrison, Angie by the Rolling Stones, Can't You See by the Marshall Tucker Band, and we end side A with the ultimate closer, Freebird by Leonard Skinner. On side B, we open with Carnival 9, First Impression Part 2 by Emerson Lincoln Palmer. That leads into My Old School by Stilly Dan. Followed by Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. That actually works. Yeah, it actually okay. works. Uh, following Tony, Orlando, and Don, we have Bad Bad Leroy Brown by Jim Croce, Long Train Running by the Doobie Brothers, Dixie Chicken by Little Feet, Into She's Gone by Holland Oates, Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder, Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Then we go into the piano, uh, the beautiful piano of Midnight Train to Georgia, followed by Two of the Great Pianists of Our Time, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, and we end Side B with Piano Man by Billy Joel.
1: Very nice. Very nice. Good collection of music.
2: It is. It was, 73 was a good year, and there's so much music that, we, of course, we did not include. 73 had a lot, a lot of very iconic tunes. Um, so I hope, uh, hope the audience enjoys it.
1: Any last words here? Um, Besides our sponsor, we want to mention John.
2: Yeah, make sure uh, if you have any painting needs, look up Jay Callahan Painting. Uh, You can find her on Facebook. She serves the greater Cleveland area, and she is phenomenal at what she does. Uh, Do we want to talk about the the Patreon account?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do have a Patreon account, but we haven't really done much with it. But if you, um, you know, it's not hugely expensive to do this, but it, it does cost a little bit of money. And so that's something that would help offset our costs. Uh, if you want to donate uh, to that, um,
2: we should figure that out. We should do something. Yeah, no, something we need to offer that. something that, yeah. that
1: uh, for the patron. I mean, it's nice when people donate on the kindness of their heart, but that's the whole idea of patron: is that, uh, you get you know d- different access than than the general listening yeah. public. But hey, you know, we also haven't completed this in a while. Um, but you know, leave a review, especially if you can oh, yeah. leave a review on on iTunes um, or on Apple, because uh, that really helps the algorithm and. Helps us come up in searches, and we just frankly love love hearing from people, um, especially when people enjoy the show, um, mm-hmm. and and we like it when people tell personal stories about listening to the show, maybe sharing the show with uh, with their their children, trying to introduce them to the stories behind some of the music they love, and um, they, you know that's that's the stuff that makes this easy to do.
2: Yeah, uh, and please. Uh, also, you can review us on Spotify. You can review us on social media. If you don't follow us on Facebook or Instagram, we are there. Look us up and and follow along. we We try to keep things light and entertaining. We always give a little heads up about the the upcoming episodes. Um, we also want to hear from you. This is important. We love the dialogue. When people reach out and they message us uh, on one of the social media sites or they email us, um, it that that's what we, that's what we love i mean we do this we did it we started it as a vanity project because we're gen x and if no one listened hey we're gen x who cares but in the three plus years we've been doing this we actually have followers we have people that listen regularly and we cannot thank you enough it is it is really humbling and it's it's very it means a lot to us that you've come along and have joined us on this crazy ride um Anybody new to the podcast please uh, email us and you know give us give us your thoughts um doesn't have to be in a review just reach out tell us what you think maybe you have an idea for an upcoming episode that we've not thought of and it would make a great mixtape yeah definitely our email
1: is GenXMixtapePodcast at gmail.com. Okay. Is that correct? I think that's right.
2: Yeah. I know that we switched the domain. Or
1: no, no, no. Now it's podcast at genxmixtape.com. That's it. Podcast at genxmixtape.com.
2: Yeah. Um, That's all I got. All right. I think we covered our bases.
1: Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll see you. Hot Funk, Cool Punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories
2: awaits next time. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you. on the flip side.
0: Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi MRX and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time